attention architects, and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. All right, Entree Architect community, it's time for Context and Clarity Live, where we spend an hour every Thursday afternoon searching for clarity around the things that matter most to you the architect. And it doesn't matter if you're the employee of a firm or if you own your own firm. Maybe you dream of starting your own thing. Maybe you've even said that 2021 is my year and you're on the runway to starting your own thing. Or maybe you have had a firm for a year or 10 years or 20 years and you're starting to rethink or reimagine what that firm could or maybe even should be. All of the topics that we cover fall under the broad umbrella of the business of architecture and they're all the need-to-know topics for the success of architects just like you. If we've never met before, my name is Jeff Eccles, and what you're about to listen to is the audio recording of a conversation that my co-host Catherine McPhail and I had last week with our Context and Clarity guest. Every week, we have a new guest and a new topic, so let's jump right into the conversation. All right, Entree Architect community, it's 4 p.m. Eastern which means it's time for the Entree Architect Context and Clarity Live conversation for Thursday, October 14th, 2021. The reason that we come here every weekday afternoon or specifically for for Context and Clarity Live every Thursday afternoon is so that we can find clarity around the things that matter most to architects. It doesn't matter if you're the employee of a firm or you own your own firm. You may have circled a date on the calendar and said, 2021 is my year, and you may be on the way to starting your own thing, or you may have owned your own firm for a year or 10 years or 26 years. You may be rethinking or reimagining what that firm could or maybe even should be. All of the topics that we cover, one topic every day, they're all the need-to-know topics for the success of small firm architects just like you. So thank you for joining us today. Uh, Let us know when you get here. Let us know that you're here. Let us know where you're joining the conversation from. If we've never met before, my name is Jeff. I'm in Indianapolis and I'm joined as usual on these special Thursday Context and Clarity Live conversations by my co-host, Catherine McPhail, who is not in Massachusetts today. No, I am. Where are you? Hi, I'm in Arizona. Arizona. Yeah, I know. It's pretty far away. I'm here for a women in podcasting conference. Very nice. We'll start right when I'm done with this. Yeah. Excellent. So uh, you are far away, but it seems like you're uh, just, just as close same. as you always are. It does feel that way. Does it does indeed? And to those of you that are joining us from the future, uh, meaning listening to this on the uh, podcast version, welcome! Thank you for joining us via the Context and Clarity podcast. Uh, many of you in our live audience hear us talk about this all the time. Pod, our Context and Clarity is also a podcast. In addition to a clubhouse room every weekday morning, uh, you can find the Context and Clarity podcast wherever you consume podcasts. Every Monday. 
we publish the audio-only version of this conversation. And then every Tuesday, we publish what we call Context and Clarity Backstage. After we're done with our conversation here with our special guest today that I almost accidentally revealed, <laughs> um, we go backstage. Catherine and I go backstage with a mystery guest and we basically break down the conversation. What are our big takeaways? What did we learn? And most specifically, what are um, how can we take what we learned and apply it to our own businesses? So check out the Context and Clarity Backstage podcast. Same place, same place that you find Context and Clarity podcast. It's just it comes out at uh, noon on Tuesday afternoons, noon Eastern on Tuesday afternoon. So a couple of ways that you can find the uh, podcast version of Context and Clarity or, or versions that you can find uh, of the uh, Context and Clarity podcast. So let's see who's joined us. Ryan Shoup, welcome back from New Jersey, a Facebook user also joining us from uh, we don't know where, which is a great reminder. If you would like to appear like Ryan does right now on the screen, his name and his profile picture show up. Uh, you are joining us. If you're joining us from Facebook, you're joining us from a private Facebook group, the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. Uh, because of Facebook's privacy policies, your information cannot be released from Facebook. It can't talk to Restream, which is this platform that we use right now, unless you give permission for that to happen. So if you want, if you want to show up like Ryan does, or like Mark LePage does, hi Mark or Janine, uh, all of them show up with their name and their picture. So in order to do that, go to the URL that's at the bottom left of your screen right now: chat.restream.io/fb, as in Facebook, and then you too can appear as your name and likeness instead of just a Facebook user. So I see Sarah Lee out there on Facebook. I see Scott's Thrift uh, joining us from sunny San Francisco via Twitch. Uh, Merritt also from Twitch. Let's see who is joining us from somewhere else. Uh, I think that's Diego joining us from YouTube in Nicaragua. Wow. And Tim Dearborn from uh, Stockton, California and LinkedIn. So we've got all of the platforms that we stream live to covered right now. So great to have all of you as you continue to join us. Got a good number up on the screen already. So as you get here, say hi. Even if you're just planning to listen in or multitask, that's all right. At least say hi. Let us know that you're here and let us know where you're joining the conversation from. Uh, one of the Facebook users is actually David Robertson from Atlanta. So welcome, David. Glad you're joining us today as well. And I see Ed in Des Moines and uh, several others. I see Rod down there from the front porch in Monroe, Louisiana with a cigar and a cappuccino. Well, that seems like you're living your best life, <laughs> Rod. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I hope you brought enough to share, actually. I'm glad you're here with us. And anybody else that's out there, say hi. Uh, what have I What have I forgotten, Catherine? What, uh, hmm. I think you pretty much co covered it. But you know what I forgot to tell you is that while I'm here in Phoenix, I am going to see Janine and Nicole and Michelle's coming over from San Diego. So we're having a little, a mini, right. a mini um, reunion, I guess. Excellent. So I'm excited great. about that. Very so good. that's one of the great mini. things about this community is that I just have friends all over the country now. It is all over the world, actually. And oh, that's one of the, all over the world. That's one of the things that uh, always boggles my mind is that we often have um, audience members joining us from the East Coast to the West Coast of the U.S., as well as, uh, you know, jumping oceans over to uh, some of the African countries, some of the countries in the UK, um, sometimes from the Middle East, the Philippines, and uh, fairly often from Australia. So we, we do wrap the globe with these conversations. And that's why we ask, you know, tell us where you are. It's fun to see where all these conversations spread. I think, um, I think you will be uh, really interested and excited in today's conversation because uh, we're going to touch on some innovation. We're going to touch on um, some topics that that you deal with probably as an architect you deal with in your day-to-day uh, -day work. Um, some things that might frustrate you from time to time, uh, as we've learned in our different context and clarity conversations this week. So with that, why don't I go ahead and introduce our guest, uh, who is right now currently in the green room, um, eating pineapple on pizza, but not raisins and cookies. 
which makes me very happy. I'm just saying that right now. <laughs> yeah, we did get to the bottom of it in case anybody's wondering we, from this morning. We got we got to the bottom. We got to the bottom. We're not going to hold the pineapple thing against him. Uh, our guest today is trained as an architect and has global experience in the profession. He's a design thinker and an entrepreneur. He's always looking for better, simpler workflows. He's the co-founder and the CEO of Upcodes, Scott Reynolds. Welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Thanks so much for uh, having me. It's it's uh, surreal being on this side of, of the screen rather than the comments section. So uh, thank you for the invite and great, great to be here. Uh, we're really happy to have you here. And um, I, I should have mentioned that you are a member of the Entree Architect community and you have been on the other side in the uh, comments section. So we thank you for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great community. So glad to uh, be part of it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, and and for those of you that are that are new, um, and I'm, I'm looking down the list now to see how many, if I can recognize names of of new members. If you're not familiar, Entree Architect Community has uh, close to um, close to 7,400 members in the Facebook group, and they are fr literally from around the world. And I just looked the other day, and on a month to month basis, there are something like 52, 5,300 active users, which is sort of mind boggling in, in uh, terms of Facebook statistics. So it's, uh, it is a great community. We're glad to have you as part of that community as well, Scott. So, um, you know, I mentioned that you're trained as an architect, you have experience and, and maybe as a, as sort of the side door into, to your backstory. Um, I mentioned that you're the co-founder with your brother, um, and CEO of, of uh, Upcodes. Why Upcodes? What, where did the idea come from, and and why do you why did you create something called Upcodes? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'll, I'll just give a little bit of a of, of some context here. So there is some construction going on next to me. They they were hammering a minute ago. Can't complain because that's all you know. It's what we do. So multifamily is. going on beside us. So um, just in case there is some hammering. Um, no worries. But uh, how, how did I initially get into it? And it, it was very much my experience working in, in architecture. So just like you said, that that's my background. Studied at Syracuse University, uh, graduated, uh, went abroad pretty pretty quickly. Um, first did an internship in, in London. Actually, that was for a graphics design company. It was a, a little bit of a segue into, into um, architecture, just not a lot of jobs at that time. So took this kind of like a couple month internship in, in London, but eventually landed in Hong Kong. Um, started working for an Australian firm, Hassel, um, based out of Hong Kong, and uh, was my first real exposure to the reality of getting things built. Um, so you go through academia, you, you learn, I think, a lot of uh, design concepts, uh, depending on your university, but uh, we didn't learn all that much about the reality of putting something together. Um, so in the first position, you know, facing building codes, mechanical codes, plumbing codes, accessibility for the first time and having massive hurdles, uh, the codes are complicated, but when you're working in Cantonese codes, where all our projects were in mainland China, uh, even more difficult, or so I thought, at least at the time. Um, so I worked with this Australian firm for a while, transferred to Cone, Pearson, Fox, our KPF, an American firm with a satellite office in Hong Kong, um, did the same thing. So mainland China projects, typically high-rise commercial uh, podium buildings, sometimes like um, like a like a yeah podium um, uh, uh, mixed use at, at the bottom, and. Um, I got a little bit, you know, tired of, of just being the passing information, figuring out what are the codes, uh, with the boots on the ground and, in, in, um, at the project sites and our design office, whether it's in, uh, Sydney or Perth with Hassel or New York city with, with KPF and decided to move to the U S said, Hey, you know, I want to be on the design side. I, I want to start designing some of these buildings, not necessarily the one who passes the, the, uh, design constraints or the, the codes to, uh, to our design teams. Lo and behold, it came stateside and the codes are way more complicated. Now they're written in English, easier for me at least to understand, but uh, significantly more complex. And uh, you have to adhere to them much more uh, diligently, let's say, than than some other places abroad. Um, so uh, where, where I thought I was going to go into an easier uh, space in terms of uh, managing codes, it was, it was significantly harder. Um, so that's when I kind of realized, you know, there, there must be a better way there, there must be a tool or something to help us along and figure out what are the, the requirements for 
for these buildings. Um, and at the time, my brother was working in uh, as a software engineer at um, PlanGrid. So a couple of folks here might have come across PlanGrid at some point in time. Um, he, he was he joined there in, in its early days. But I um, one Thanksgiving, I brought him over to New York City, where I was living at the time, and said, "You know, can we use software? Can we leverage software to to develop some tools around this?" And um, that was kind of the, the beginning of, of Upcodes. Always meant to be a side project. Um, but, uh, just got more and more traction as we kind of put it out there, shared it with colleagues, shared it with my, my network. And, um, uh, yeah, that's kind of the, the, the origin story, but I'll, uh, maybe I'll pause there to see if there's any, <laughs> any you, questions. You said you graduated or when you graduated, uh, when you did your internship with the graphic design, uh, house in uh, London, that there weren't a lot of jobs. What year did you graduate? Um, graduated in 2011. Um, so this is coming off the tail end of, of, uh, Yeah. Uh, the recession and uh art you know i mean everyone here knows but uh, architecture gets hit really hard and and while the economy was recovering i'm sure everyone will remember this but like the jobs were lagging quite a bit and i think i was looking for a very specific type of firm international projects get to travel a little bit and and uh experience the world so for for that very kind of niche kind of position it, there was few and far in between until i got to hong kong and it was a different story there Right. Yeah. It, that makes sense. Uh, I was thinking, you know, in terms of timing and, uh, I listened to the interview that you did with Mark LePage for the, uh, uh, Entree Architect podcast, um, maybe a couple of years ago now, um, in, in maybe in COVID time, the Mark mentioned something, and this is, this is what always goes through my mind when we're talking about codes is my memory of, of building codes is the the big binder, right? With the 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 colored sheets that are the amendments and and you know you're talking about um, the different layers and how complicated things are. And um, we uh, I see Nicole has joined us from Arizona. She was talking the other morning on Clubhouse because she works. Uh, I think Nicole is licensed in something like 13 states or something. And and you know not only and you know what goes through my head is wow, yeah, a lot of complicated, um, a lot of information, um, not necessarily written in a way that's easy for us to understand. And then you get down to the application and then you're like Nicole and you work across lots and lots of jurisdictions. So um, it makes total sense to me that as, as a young person in the profession, you go, wow, there's got to be a better way. Um, where So you decide there's there has to be a better way. You've tested with your your brother, who's a software engineer. What was the next step? What happens after that? Yeah, and and, and I'll just mention too that that example of working across jurisdictions is is definitely one of my frustrations. It's one of those things that you um, shouldn't really be a barrier to entry. You know, just figuring out like what what are the codes, what's applicable, making sure you you have um, all the the amendments and the supplements, and the, or even getting the, the right code. Um, that that should ideally in, in an ideal world that should you just take that for granted like that should be the starting line and then the hard part is designing or, or putting the buildings together that that's what we all get trained as and i think that's the interesting heart and but hard part of the process so the um kind of inefficiencies of figuring out what's applicable i think is is uh one of the things we're trying to tackle um certainly um but sorry it's a bit of a tangent um to go back to your question you know where, where do we go from there um so we we kind of put it out there as as a um, as a side project, uh, like I was mentioned before, and it got more and more traction to the point where um, we're starting to get feedback and and, and requests for like expanding, uh, especially the code coverage. I think we were just focused on New York City at the beginning, so there's a lot of uh, requests from across the country. To an extent, where we're like, hey, there, you know, while this was kind of a fun project, there actually might be something behind it. Maybe it's not just my own pain point. It, it seems to resonate with a lot of folks. Um, so we both, um, I think we, I don't know what the sequence was, but we ultimately, we both left our respective jobs. So I left KPF, Garrett left, uh, Plan Grid. I was in New York city at the time he was in San Francisco and we were just work. The two of us were working remote, putting this together. So I was figuring out what codes are applicable. What code should we bring on? How should the search engine work? Um, and I had no background in, in technology, shipping technology products. And I, I, I mean, I'm still learning just as much today as I was day one, but especially at that time, there's so many hurdles to learning a new workflow. It's um, 
you know, how do you even get these websites stood up? What's what's the search engine in the background? How, what does the interface look like? What is user experience design and all these things? Um, and Garrett, fortunately, he had some background on the technical side, but uh, we, we kept pushing it forward. And eventually I moved to San Francisco so we could be in, located in, in the same place and, and kind of built it from there. And it got more and more traction. Um, and eventually enough traction that we actually took on some investment, some outside investment. Um, and to give a little bit more context here, to that point, we were just using savings. So working as an architect, I was you know fairly junior out of school a couple of years, so pretty modest savings. So those savings went down to zero. So the external investment was uh, was very welcomed because uh, we were you know we weren't like no one, the company wasn't making any money. We were just kind of work on it just to try and get these codes together and make it some a useful tool. Um, so it was really helpful to kind of uh, expand the team a little bit and, and grow it out uh, more from, from there. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, so you went, you went through Y Combinator and uh, some in our audience will, will understand uh, what Y or know what Y Combinator is a uh, uh, startup accelerator or startup incubator, if you will. Um, which I assume is what led to the uh, outside investment. When I heard you say in in an interview that there's something like ninety thousand codes across the United States, how how do you go about figuring out what all the codes are? Which I guess. It, you know, I guess in a way is an extension of the previous question. How do you figure out what all the codes are? And then how do you capture all of that to try to roll it into, into a central place like Upcodes? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great question. And I think, I think the study was done by the economist. I think it was 93,000 different building codes across the U S when you take into account every single little jurisdiction. Um, it, so a massive challenge. Uh, I think, I think it was, I mean, we still work on it today, but the first two years or so was, was almost exclusively dedicated to building the backend technology that could manage the, the code repository, B- basically all, all the code, um, library and manage, manage updates when supplements would go out amendments. How, how do you actually track that? How do you know when that happens? And then once it does happen, how do you actually get that information into the database and assimilate it and, and bring it in? Um, so there's almost two years of development just building that and it seems very very simple uh, but jeff to your point like you know we're, we're trying to go from at the time from inserting into a binder you know the v- very analog um, method so there's a lot of work on on that front but today as we've expanded jurisdictions across the country um, we just have full-time people that, that do that um, some governments are pretty good about being transparent um, so two that come to mind i'm sure there's many more uh, but new york city department of buildings california do a a great um, job kind of getting ahead of the curve for the most time or most part um, where they announce like codes coming up changes and things like that. But that's not always the case. So some departments we're, we're, we're calling them, we're emailing them. We're trying to um, uh, yeah, get, uh, get more information where you can't on the website or it's not publicly available. So um, and an interesting way, hopefully if we do that, if we're, if we're trying to constantly, I mean, not Badger, but, you know, we're trying to get that information from the departments. Uh, then we can kind of democratize that and share that with everybody and say, hey, heads up, Ohio, they have an interesting uh, supplement or, or, or code update in the pipeline or something like that. And we want to try and get ahead of that as much as possible. We're, 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 there's a lot of room to improve, but we're constantly trying to uh, not just capture the updates, but then get proactive and get them ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so like New York City just went into, um, they just adopted the new set of codes and that went to, I think a vote passed end of last week, I believe it was, or maybe the week before that, but you know, getting that transparency, showing people, Hey, when you're browsing this section, that section actually might change in the future. Like when you go for permitting, it might look a little bit different than it does today. And how do we start to surface these things? Um, so some of that we, we've built, uh, but there's just so much more we can, we can do. Well, I think you pretty much answered the question that I had up on the screen that Ryan asked. So I, I have a question for you. And this is probably a stupid question, but I'm in Massachusetts or, you know, that's where I work. And uh, they always say you should just get the one, only use the code that we give out at the state house. That's it. Don't ever trust any online thing. So I have a hard time trusting 
up codes because of that, <laughs> of the however many years of them telling me, don't trust anything you see online. You have to make sure in this book that you can only yeah. buy from us for 20 bucks. Yeah. So, so there's that too. <laughs> yeah. Interesting incentives there. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, what I will say, or maybe bring in some, some case uh, studies or examples, um, oftentimes when you do get an addition of the code, that code will change over time. And I'll use one, one example that happened last week, I believe. Someone wrote in and they said, hey, you know, in California, I like I have my book and I, I've inserted the supplements. Um, and I think this section is is outdated. Um, and then we said, OK, well, you know, we'll, we'll dig into it and all those things and contact the department. But actually, we didn't even need to contact the department. What ended up happening was there was another supplement after that that had overridden this historical supplement. So when you're getting these things, they tend to be a snapshot in time and you can you should be diligent to be inserting those updates. But more often than not, it it, um, it it can be quite hard to keep up with the amount of information changing for that. Um, so a lot of times it's it's just a matter of like confusion when we talk to folks. It's like, um, oh, um, yeah, they're working off an updated or outdated um, uh, piece of code. And just one more interesting example is is a department. So we worked with uh, with one of our clients. They they were submitting their application, and then the department said, hey, you know, I. I think it was in California as well, actually, because the supplements are so substantive. Um, and they said, hey, I, you know, I think it's a fixture count. And they're like, I, this fixture count is this code. And it ended up being the department who, who had that of date code. And, and, and that's just the reality that, that different uh, uh, parties are operating off different um, kind of uh, uh, viewpoints or, or uh, points of information. And a big ambition for us is to bring transparency and consistency to that. So there should never be a question is, is the building department working off the right information? Is, is the architect working off the right information? Ideally, it's just completely transparent. Um, and I think the the only way to do that is through a digital nature where you can keep these things instantaneously up to up to date. So along those lines, I mean, do you see that as a way for states, to, like as Chris was asking, is there a way for that to more easily happen? He was talking this morning about how he's also in Massachusetts and how it takes about five years or so for states to adopt the code, but then... Do you see a way for that to happen more quickly? Yeah, um, and and this gets into a little bit of a, of a tangent, but I think it's really interesting. Um, so when we ingest, so that's why we bring the codes into the system when new codes come out, there's a bunch of uh, QA, QC automated, and then of course human as well. But in the QA, QC, it automatically flag uh, potential issues in the code. It says, hey, the, the numbering sequence is not right. There, there is a... Um, uh, uh, there's a conflict in, in the way the code is structured. So it'll automatically flag those things. And nine times out of 10, it, it's an error in the in the original authoring of the code. So then we reach out to the department and we say, hey, here's a laundry list of, of what we think are going to be code errors. And then they confirm them. They're like, yes, this is an error. Um, and then what we do is go on the site and say, like, here's a note, user note. This, this is an error, but it'll be fixed in the next edition. So you can... So you can picture that's a very kind of inefficient way to write the code. Like they write the code, it gets shipped, we we get it, we ingest it, we flag all these issues, then we have to go back to them, then they have to confirm that those are mistakes, then they have to catch that in a future update. Now, to go back to, to Chris's question, um, I think to make that much more streamlined, I, I think we can do uh, or have some kind of collaboration where we provide the departments with these tools. It's like, let, let's catch that error before it ever goes to print. Let, let's make your authoring process uh, more bulletproof and more um, uh, uh, reliable than just working say Microsoft Word where you you do have the ability to do things out of order and and numerically you can you can make yeah uh, mistakes or or there's no kind of validations or checks uh, done by it so I think that's like a big area that we like to look into uh, instead of being kind of retroactive and catching a lot of these errors yeah that that makes total sense to me uh, it might have been Chris that was telling me, he and I were talking the other day, um, talking about a zoning code, which, you know, not a building code, but some jurisdiction had made some mistake and basically by accident overwritten, if you will, that's probably not the right term, but overwritten their entire zoning code, um, which of course causes a, a huge problem. Um, this this whole idea of machine learning, AI technology assisting in this process, really, maybe it's just me, but, but it must not just be me. Um, it seems to make a whole lot of sense to me because I, I still feel like at times that we're 
we're operating in 2021 and somewhere at ICC, sorry to call ICC out on the carpet, but, um, but there must be scribes in a room somewhere with, with quill pens, uh, doing all of this by hand, um, versus the technology that's available to us. So, um, it, it just, it amazes me the amount of, uh, of information and data that you're crunching through, which tells us that there's, you know, there's a lot of people that are working really, really hard and inefficiently uh, somewhere else, and there's a better way to do it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It, it, it reminds me a lot of comparing CAD to Revit, where CAD is a lot more freeform and, and certainly has advantages in certain capacities. Um, but there are a lot of advantages to Revit, which provides a little bit of, of guardrails. So if you're making it an object, it, it will kind of define some of those parameters and at least you have to like opt to, to, to get outside of certain parameters. Um, and I think in a similar way, like creating the data in a very structured way, not only prevents there from, from being errors, but also makes it easy to operate with. So like Jeff, like you're mentioning like machine learning or AI, the more structured the data, and it doesn't need to be totally structured, but if it's semi-structured, it's, it's significantly easier to work with than just free-form text, which is notoriously uh, difficult. So speaking of, of uh, AutoCAD, Revit, you know, whatever, pick your, pick your platform, pick your software. Um, I think you've talked before about a way to, I'm going to say, connect upcodes with uh, the software that you're using. Are you still working on that? Is that still a thing or what's the future of that? Yeah, so so that is that is definitely the the roadmap or the future we want to work towards. And for a brief stint, we did a Revit plugin. So it would look at your at the BIM and start to identify potential code issues. So it, it would flag specifically around ADA checks. But the problem was we could look at a bathroom and start to assess it for ADA um, uh, 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 compatibility. But the problem was, it, does that bathroom even need to be? ADA compliant or not in the first place. We couldn't really answer that. So we had this kind of large scale scoping problem where we didn't know where this building was located, the, the occupants or like what the requirements are for this. Um, so we actually took a step back where um, we said, okay, let's, let's define the requirements. So what is this building? Who's occupying the building? Um, and what is the construction type sprinkling options? And then we can define, okay, what's the fixture counts? What's your heights and areas? What are the, what's the egress uh, travel distance? Uh, fire resistance ratings. Um, and then from there, we can get back into the Revit or, or any kind of 3D checking. Um, and, and just as a company, that's what we're focused on today. And it is the, what we call code calculators, defining the scoping requirements for the building and generating a code sheet. Um, and then ideally in the near future, that'll unlock us to get back into to BIM uh, model checking, where then we can say, okay, we know you need this many fixtures. Here's your ADA scoping heights and areas, travel distance, and then we can go through and document and start to flag issues and kind of queue up that code report for the AHJ. That's amazing that you could do, if you could do that, that would be pretty amazing. It, it, it's going to take a lot of work. I'll, I'll, I'll just say that it's uh, when, when you dive into the 3D land, it's, uh, and especially Revit, very, very messy data, um, unfortunately from, from Autodesk, but uh, it's challenging, but I think, I think it'll be worth it. Well, to follow up on that, we had a question this morning. Will you end up selling to Autodesk <laughs> or Amazon? Because Amazon buys everything, but Autodesk makes more sense, probably. Yeah, it's it's it, it's really interesting because there there tends to be these convergence of of software. So, like, I think everyone seems to be when I say everyone, I mean the big players seem to be moving towards having like a suite of of tools. Um, but I think where we want to take the company, I, I don't think would be all that compatible with, with some of these large, um, like, like Autodesk, um, trying to think of some big, other big players in the space. Um, uh, uh, it'll, it'll come back to me that the other one's thinking of, but they bought, uh, Aconix. Um, but anyways, yeah. So, um, there, there is this, this convergence by thinking a way you, you, you give up your, your roadmap and, and it's going to be shaped towards what they view and the, and the way they view the world. And, and I think there is a huge amount of benefit to being independent where you can try and define what you want the workflows to be, not answering or, or, or in service of this other product, if, if that makes sense. And we have uh, one request to not do that. 
So okay. then it sounds like for Alliance. I'm, I'm yeah. glad. <laughs> well, you, you, you mentioned workflow and I, I think probably that's in a way, the most important thing that, that we're talking about here. And one, um, I don't remember if it was yesterday in our context and clarity conversation, or if it was this morning on clubhouse, but, but, uh, I think it was yesterday. I think it was Javier was talking about how he learned, um, to do, to do code research. So, and, and you created this, I mean, you were, you were relatively young in the, in the field when you created this, um, not right out of school, obviously, but, um, I think there are many people in the profession that are, you know, they're, they're out of school for several years before they're really digging too deep into, into building code. So what's the difference with a tool like Upcodes versus the binder on the shelf? What's the difference for a young person that's making their way in the profession and, and learning things like how to do code review and, or, or simply how to look things up, I guess, uh, you know, maybe not even putting together a code sheet, but what's the difference in, in the way that they're able to, to research and learn now with a tool like this? Yeah. So, so I think in a, in a, in a couple areas and starting from basic to more advanced from a very basic level of just searching and cutting across your jurisdiction. So, uh, lifting out the, when you're, when you're executing a search and say like, um, Ohio or Massachusetts or Florida, Texas, um, cutting through that whole jurisdiction and lifting out codes from not, not just the building code or, or, or let's say an ICC based adoption. I, I think I saw in the chat, um, like NFPA, but a lot of the codes are, are written in, uh, non-compatible formats and people have probably come across that more times than they would like to, uh, you know, or they're like at all, especially when it comes to NFA, NFPA versus ICC. But now that we've brought those codes into kind of a consolidated ecosystem. So to actually answer that question really quickly. So actually we do have a lot of NF. PA based adoptions, which is new as of a couple months ago, um, but executing a search and then lifting out the relevant codes and he, and maybe if there's a more stringent code. So especially if you're more junior, you might be looking exclusively at, let's say the mechanical code or the building code or, or residential code, not knowing that there's a more restrictive code in another publication. So that, that's like a very simple kind of um, way, kind of cutting through and searching can help. Um, and then kind of the middle step is illustrations and diagrams. So to engage with this, this topic that codes are very hard to interpret and to understand how they apply to your project, we've started to layer on top um, uh, diagrams that help unpack the code or examples. So it can say, okay, here's a gross first net area. Here, here's an example of how you might go about that or to, to explain it in a visual, visually and then with plain English. Um, or an example like one hour, two hour fire rated wall or an assembly. Um, so attaching these visual diagrams and then in that diagram, linking the code. So it's like, here's a topic. You are looking at a two hour fire rated wall via this section, but here's five other sections you should be looking at as a heads up. Like, like you can't just look at one place in the code. Um, so, so that's the second one is, is layering on top this, this, uh, these diagrams and visual unpackings of the code, uh, as an intermediate step. And then I, I would say like the most advanced way would, would be doing the code calculators. So going to the inputs, this is where we're located. This is the occupants. This is the construction type and, and playing with those inputs and seeing all the downstream code implications, because you'll get the code sheet and you can go and change your construction type or change, uh, maybe the, the, the gross area on a certain occupancy and see what the, the downstream impact would be, or, or is this a horizontal separation and, and what uh, construction types can I use? And there's a ton of guides that says, okay, if, if you are using this horizontal separation, there's restrictions on the occupancies you can have above that. So, so building a lot of these guides, but also flags and validations to start to determine to say, Hey, there might be an issue uh, with this proposed design. So a lot of that is built into the, to the product. Um, and then lastly with that, when you do have your code sheet, each module, so let's say like building height um, has an explanation. So there's a little explanation button you can click and it'll, it'll walk through step-by-step. Step. This is how you get to the end result. So it's by no means like a black box. You can you can say this is how my project maps across all the different um, uh, formulas and lookup tables, and you can track your whole project through it. And that's all linked back to the code. So we're always encouraging, especially the junior folks, to get back into the code. So yes, like we did the calculation for you. 
but here is the proof of work and, and you should be looking at those sections to get familiar. This is, this is where we're, we're pulling those sections from. Um, so obviously helps with the calculation and documentation, but education is, is a big uh, component of that. You had me at the, at the wall types because the minute, the minute you said this, I, I had this visceral memory of sitting at my desk with multiple code books open. Right? Because you're looking, <laughs> right, you know, what, right. you've got to have a two hour separation. Okay. What's that? Right. And we've got another book open. We've got another book open. It's, it's amazing. I, I think the, the top five most popular diagrams, I think there's a one hour fire partition, two hour firewall, um, a grade plane uh, calculation. Uh, and if I forgot what the other two of the top five are, but uh, I think you and, and a lot of other folks, that's, they, were, they found a lot of, uh, a lot of value. <laughs> that's, that's tremendous. Um, so what about, this is another thing, because a lot of our community are, uh, are probably almost all of our communities, small firm architects. Uh, many are residential, uh, do mainly residential work. Some will do, uh, for the majority of their career, will do a specific project type in a specific jurisdiction or very close to that. So what's the benefit of, again, something like upcodes for a, uh, an architect that may do uh, custom homes in, um, I don't know, in upstate New York, as a, for instance, um, where, you know, they're, they're maybe not going all that deep into all the sections of the code all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, and that's a, it's also a great use case. And I was just chatting with someone this morning about that. Um, so there's shared projects and sorry, I'm diving into all these different workflows, um, but you can create a project or a template for a building. So if you're going to do a lot of the same kind of project types, um, you can create a template or, or just crib off of a historical project, but you, you have a kind of a description of of the project. You have all your bookmarks, um, of the relevant code, the annotations. If you do want to use the code calculators, those are there as well. And you can create that template and then just keep duplicating. So it's like rinse and repeat. Don't don't do the the code report or the code analysis uh, from the ground up every time. You can start from the fifty yard lines. Like you know we, we've yeah upstate New York we we've deployed a bunch of these projects before. Let's duplicate a historical one or maybe someone in the office has created a template. Duplicate that template, rename it, and then tweak it for that given project. But um, a, a big part of what we focus on is is the ability to retain a lot of the code research and, and knowledge. Uh, internally so that you can apply that to future projects. So if, if you're working on the same project over and over, it's actually a, a really good use case uh, for it in an interesting way. Yeah. And it's, and so I, I designed a custom home uh, today, 2021 upstate New York. And then uh, I don't know what the, what the right time frame would be, but let's say I do another one in 2023 code may have changed. And so you, I've got that template but it's going to be updated, right? With, with, uh, as the code is updated. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so, um, great question. That's actually what we're working on now is, is updating okay. it, migrating it to either different jurisdictions okay. or updated code years. So let's say you had one in the 2015 New York state, and you want to bring that to the 2020, uh, edition you could, um, or in, in shortly in the future, you'll be able to say, okay, duplicate it, but update it to this, this new set. Or if you're working in New York State and you want to go to Connecticut or Massachusetts, you could say, we have a very similar project, duplicate that and tweak it for Massachusetts, and then automatically flag where the codes differ. Um, so if a section doesn't exist or they have a, uh, a new exception or the re- removed an exception that you're using, it can automatically flag that. So it could say, yes, it's, it's 90% the same between these two different code editions or jurisdictions. Uh, but here is where it differs and we'll just bring that to your attention so you can tweak the project. That's pretty amazing. So as we, as we think about the way that codes are developed now, and we sort of touched on this a little bit earlier, um, in the future, do you see yourself, meaning you up codes, um, or, or simply enough critical mass behind an idea like upcodes, do you see that having an impact on the way that codes are written and organized? So I certainly hope so, uh, to answer that <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> concisely. <enough. laughs> um, but I think um, 
And I, I think there was a context and clarity session recently that I, I, I dropped this one term in there, but it's actually quite, there's a lot to unpack there and it's called refactoring. Um, so it, it's a concept in uh, uh, software engineering where you take your historical code that you wrote and then you, you, you try and write it. So it's going to output exactly the same thing, but you clean it up because the first time you did it, you maybe don't know all the context and there's a certain variables that you don't know at the time. But in hindsight, you can actually make that considerably smaller or cleaner. And, that, and that's called refactoring. So, and, and typically gives exactly the same output. Um, but when people write the code, it's, it's always additive. So it always gets more complex and it always go, goes in one direction. So as the committees work on it, it it's, it's very, very uh, infrequently made uh, more simple or consolidated. So I think when we go through and we're mapping out all the different calculations, we're, we're seeing all the in, inefficiencies. Because we have to do it very binary because software doesn't like vagueness. So you have to make decisions and, and you always have to err on the right side. But there's a ton of opportunities to consolidate the codes and make them simpler while maintaining you know, the, the same safety standards. Um, so that's one way we, we would love to get involved is, is to say, hey, we're going like, to we're, we're help with the code. But specifically, we don't want to add anything to the code. I, I just want to make it more simple. We'll get you the same end results but in, in, in 50% of, of, of the verbiage. Um, and it'll be more precise too. So less opportunities uh, uh, to interpret the wrong way. So what will it take to, uh, to convince somebody? Or, or is that the biggest hurdle? Is it to convince the powers, the current powers that be to change that? Um, what, what's the tipping point? Or is there, do you think there is a tipping point out there that, that reverses the trend of complete, always being additive? Yeah, that, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. Um, and sorry, I just want to mention quickly, Ryan. Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right. Like value engineering is, is, is the, is the, uh, yeah, exactly what, uh, what it is. Um, and, and so, so what is the, that, that leverage point or critical mass to get to that point? I, when we look at collaborating with the HJs, like showing them when we've automatically flagged potential issues, when they um, send out the supplements errata or even new code updates, they're 90% of the time, they're extremely receptive because um, we're, we're just trying to help them. It's like, hey, um, like there's no, like we're not trying to do this to get anything back. It's just here's all these code issues that we don't like, you're kind of forcing your hand. We have to that is the, that's the code. That's the law. We got to do it as you told, told us. And, but we have to write a bunch of caveats so the users know. Um, but in an ideal world, that doesn't exist at all. So I think it's just a, a win-win. So at least in that experience, there's never been um, pushback or um, them not wanting to adopt that. So I think as long as their incentives are, you know, to, to make cleaner, faster, more efficient codes, I, I think it, it works pretty well. I can't say everybody has the same incentives, but um I think for, for the most parts with most, if not all departments we've worked with, it's, it's been the case. So there's an ongoing lawsuit right now, um, which we can, we can touch on, but, um, skipping ahead, maybe a, a step or two, is there ever a scenario that you can see where you're somehow teamed up with the ICC? Yeah. Good, good question. I think, um, I mean, we, we would like that. Like, I think if it's a more collaborative uh, than combative would be great. Um, but uh, to say this delicately, like, I think a lot of the SDOs have seen the world a certain way and they're very resistant to seeing it a different way. Um, and they've made massive quantities of, of money from that. And I think they're very incentivized to not have things change. So it, it, it is a bit of a more difficult conversation when... It, the way they're incentivized, they don't, there's no reason for them to modernize that process or, uh, or, or introduce these things. Cause it's like, well, things have been pretty, like pretty good for the last uh, 20 years for us. So like, why would, why do we want anything to change? So we've, um, yeah. So to answer your question, ideally it's collaborative. Hopefully we get there at some point. Uh, but I think it's, yeah, they're gonna have to be a little bit more flexible in, in, in how they view, um, the world. Yeah, you you uh, you're breaking their business model at this point, I guess. Well, or, or asking just, them to. 
Well, actually, just to, just to chime in on that for just really quickly. It, so they are a nonprofit, technically, um, despite their salaries. But if you uh, look at the amount, their revenue line items, um, it, publication sales, so actually selling the book or the online subscriptions, account for less than 15% of the revenue. So when they say that, oh, this is, you know, critical for, for, the, for the organization going forward, it's like, well, it only represents 15% of your revenue. Um, and um, so, so that's, that's, that's pretty interesting that the bulk of the revenue comes from uh, accreditation programs and um, kind of all the auxiliary content around uh, being a publisher. So um, Ed wanted to know about pricing. He says, I am perusing the Upcodes website. Could Scott, please elaborate on some of the subscription offerings, code calculator, code sheet, export, code diagram. And I'm also going to throw in another possible one that I was thinking, because I'm, I'm one of those people who just does residential in Massachusetts right now. So to me, like, is there, would it be possible to have a little mini subscription just for that one thing? Okay. And that's it. Yeah. Next question. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. Yeah, good question. So, uh, so it's a little bit of background, kind of what, one of the big pillars uh, of the company is that code is so complicated to begin with. Anything that's not the code, like all the supporting auxiliary content should be as simple as possible. So when we thought about pricing, we're, we said, okay, let's just make it as simple and straightforward as possible. It's going to be one price and it's just going to be the whole suite. Um, and so the benefit is like, it, it, yes, it is more simple. I guess the downside uh, to, your, to your point is that like, like if, if you have like a smaller uh, set of features that you want to use, it uh, maybe doesn't yeah, work as well. So, um, so we're still trying to figure it out. We're, we're, yeah. Sorry, that's like a bit of a non-answer, but, uh, but right now it's just like one. No, that's an answer. Just, yeah, one price and it's just the whole, the whole suite and right. everything going forward too. So well, I'm going to write you a note to, to remind you about how that would be because yeah, the feeling like sure. I feel like I've been doing it for so long that I know what certain things are but then they change they change over mm -hmm. time so anyway so it's not really for me it would be expensive to have a th have the subscription every month when I'm not really going to look at it that often you know possibly mm -hmm. but then when I don't look at it I would be in trouble so I should just have something I could check all the time so, so that's just the way I feel about it and and an interesting thing there, just just really quick thought. Um, one of the for for that use case, one of the features is code compare, so you can look at the changes in code. So you can say, okay, I'm working on this edition. Has it changed from the earlier edition that I'm very comfortable and I and I know very well? Um, and it'll highlight exactly where the text has changed. So so like these words have been added, this exception's been added, or this one's been removed. If it's been relocated in the same code, it tells you where it's gone, and then you can go click and you can compare. So. Um, it doesn't solve the frequency issue, but um, no. but hopefully it solves the understanding. Has that section changed or has any language? Yeah, it would just be interesting reading because honestly, I love rules like that. So yeah, I, mean, it, I could just read it for fun, I guess. If, if you want to see interesting, you should you compare whatever jurisdiction you're into, like California or New York City, and then see the yeah, differences between those. Be. And it's just, uh, those are the most yeah. extreme where you'll everything gets chopped up and, and moved all over. Catherine, I think it would take it from being um, a code a business tool to probably a hobby where you sat around at night and compared all these yep. things and across different jurisdictions. Right. And if I could only find one or two other people who would also like to do that, we could just have Zoom meetings that we just talk about. Did you see this difference like, in code? That's fascinating. You could anyway, have a code a club. Way. A code yeah, club, exactly. Instead of a book code club, club, you have a code club. Right. <laughs> the uh, Upcodes <laughs> Code Club. Yeah, I, I can see my life getting really exciting. <laughs> it could be and, exciting. And yeah. We've actually chatted uh, a bunch about, you know, we didn't call it the code club, but, but basically like a forum. Like can, can we create some place where folks can talk to each other and, and, and yeah, maybe it's differences or, or helping analyze, you know, what this, this section means. And we're still trying to wrap our heads around it. So, mm. I mean, I'd love to hear from the community, but um, the, what we're trying to figure out is, is that, uh, there, there is a risk of, of someone who might be, have a high degree of confidence, but, but not know the section that well. So they might come in and answer and say like, this is what it is. Um, but it might not be correct. And therefore like a little bit yeah. challenging to parse the signal from the noise. Uh, but I think there's some, there's something there. Cause if we can pool our knowledge together and, and then just have this, this open, uh, discussion and forum, then ho hopefully we can surface some of these answers. Okay. Yeah, it would, ju it would just be for code nerds. It wouldn't really be for information because we go to you for information. We would just sit around and 
I don't know, talking about code for fun. Someone else was writing, had written earlier about zoning. If Could you do that for zoning? But that would be impossible. I feel like there's no way on earth you could do that. That would um, be every single town in the whole country would have a different. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, exactly that. Um, it, it differs to such a high extent, depending on your geography or where you're based. It's, it's, uh, it's almost impossible to, to scale up across. And, and in fact, there's a couple of companies, um, Envelope.City, I think out of New York, um, I've, I think there's one in the Midwest or the West, um, forget their name, but, but there are a couple that uh, tackled that, but this, the scaling getting outside of your jurisdictions is extremely difficult. Do you have any competitors? Well, it, so, uh, this kind of goes back to the, to the, to the legal, uh, aspect. I think we would have competitors if, if they hadn't been kind of artificially suppressed in the last 10 years, we've connected with a lot of folks. Who said like, hey, we wanted to do something very similar to what we're doing today, or or something else, but related. Like someone was talking about like a firewall calculator, and it, it just helped a ton with sprinklering codes and like fire codes, and do all these things. And and companies too, not just individuals. And we've talked to so many folks that wanted to do that, but just got really threatening, nasty letters from from the lawyers. Um, and who knows what those tools could have become if if the ecosystem of codes was more open. Um, so hopefully going forward, now that we've laid down more and more case law that yes, these things enter the public domain when they're adopted into law, no one can copyright the law, which should, should be obvious, but like you do need the judges to say that, um, hopefully people start to come in and develop in all sorts of tools and, and areas. And I, I think ideally it'd be just as thriving and robust as other industries. So if you look at lawyers or you look at, uh, really anyone else, when it comes to, to their tool set, they, they have a bunch of different options to choose from. Um, so maybe in five years, it, it, you might choose from three or four very strong options and, and maybe they're unique to say like residential, or maybe they're unique to commercial or this part of the country. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to it now that things are opening up substantially. That's excellent. That's excellent. It, it uh, you know, this whole idea of democratizing it all is, makes a lot of sense. <laughs> okay, so Ryan wanted to know which would be better or worse, Code Club or Door Hardware Club. It is hard to choose. They're totally different things. Oh, you could have both. Well, I don't know. You don't have to have one or the other. Door Hardware Club would be kind of fun, actually, I think. You know, I don't know if anyone's come across it, but there's a website called I Dig Hardware, I think it is. Um, huh. And it's a little bit bigger than just Door Hardware, but it's, it's, it's pretty in line, actually. So we, we, uh, that one might be taken. Okay, well, I'll have to go join it. And, and it's good can, articles, great articles, actually. Yeah, you can see exactly where uh, Ryan's interests are. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm envisioning we need a couple of shirts here. There's one that says code nerd. There's one that says door nerd, maybe. <laughs> and there's one that just says nerd and it covers everything. I mean, you can have a variety of interests if it just says nerd. This, this is true. This yeah. is true. Up nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Um, (laughs) Scott, this has been a, it's been a fantastic and fascinating conversation. I'm, I am, uh, uh, really just, you know, you kind of hit in an area that, uh, that really intrigues me about the future of the profession. Um, we'll, we're going to have somebody on context and clarity live in the near future to talk about AI and architecture and, I'm always fascinated. Catherine's shaking her head. Um, I'm always. It's fascinated. almost over for us, Jeff. We're almost going to be replaced by these. Not robots. until Skynet. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I love what you're doing here. Again, I'm I'm. Most of the community knows that I am, am blissfully unaware of of code research these days, and I'm not a upcode user because of that. But I'm just fascinated by what I see and what I hear and uh, what I see you doing. So uh, thank you for joining us today and, and sharing all this information with us. Yeah. Well, th- thanks so much for having me and for everyone that joined. Um, and I'll just mention too, most of us come from industry, but haven't, uh, you know, practiced in now a couple of years. So the only way we keep our finger on the pulse for what to build is, is by connecting with the community. So if there is code coverage or, or, or features or anything like that, you'd love to see or like to see, uh, definitely let us know. My email is Scott at upcodes. Or, you know, you can reach out to us on LinkedIn or Twitter or, or directly over the website. We just love to connect with the community and um, always here to chat. So if you have any ideas or anything like that, we'd love to uh, love to connect. Yeah, that's excellent. I appreciate that. So everybody, 
you know, whether you're in the live audience right now or you're listening in the future on the podcast version, uh, Scott mentioned it, right? He wants to hear from the community. And I think that ties directly into what they're doing here at Upcodes. Give, give them a shout out um, what, in whichever, may, whichever way makes sense and uh, help them make what they're doing better and more useful to you. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing where all of this goes. So uh, thanks again, Scott. And to all of our uh, audience here, whether you're live right now or uh, listening in the future on the uh, podcast, thank you. Thanks for all your questions and your comments here live. Uh, thanks for making context and clarity a thing. I say this every week uh, because it's true. If it weren't for all of you, we wouldn't be having this conversation with Scott right now. Uh, we just turned the corner. Uh, I guess it was last Wednesday. So you heard this at the end of last week's episode as well. Um, last Wednesday was 18 months of daily context and clarity conversations. And I don't have any idea how many of these context and clarity lives that we've done now, but that's only because of all of you. That's all only because all of you show up and you say, Hey, this is what we're interested in. These are the questions we have. Uh, you, 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 uh, attend and you, you drive these conversations. So I thank all of you for that. Um, for making context and clarity thing. Catherine, as always, thank you for co-hosting this with me. Enjoy Arizona and uh, say hello to Nicole and Janine and Michelle while you're there. In your I little, will, I will. Uh, yep, your, uh, your mini context and clarity reunion, I suppose. You get together out there and also the, uh, the podcast conference there. So with that, everybody, again, appreciate all of you, wherever you are and whenever you're listening or watching this. Um, take care of yourselves. Be well, be safe, take care of those that are around you, and um, find a little bit of time to breathe tonight. Relax a little bit, rejuvenate, because we're going to do this again tomorrow in a context and clarity conversation format. And next week, we'll be back here again, Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern, live, and Jonathan Siegel will be our guest next Thursday. We'll talk about architect as developer uh, with uh, Jonathan next Thursday. So I hope you will join us wherever you consume context and clarity. And uh, until then, I hope that I will see you somewhere sometime soon. Thanks, everybody. Bye, everyone. Okay, well, there you have it. What did you think of that conversation? Hopefully, there was some big takeaway that will help you this week with your business. If there was, let me know. DM me on Instagram or on Twitter. You can find me on all the socials at Jeff underscore Eccles. So send me a message and let me know what your takeaway was. And if you want more conversations like this, subscribe to the Context and Clarity podcast and leave us an honest review and rating. Those things really help us get the message out and help us help more architects just like you. Oh, and follow Context and Clarity on Instagram as well so you can get a heads up on everything that's coming up. In our next episode, Catherine will join me again along with a special guest, or will it be guests from the Context and Clarity community so we can break this conversation down? It will be Context and Clarity backstage, so to speak. So join us as we all share our biggest takeaways and look for ways to apply what we heard in today's conversation to our own businesses. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment, and it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you'll find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And finally, if today's topic is of particular interest to you, and you'd like to dig deeper into it, then join me over in the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. That's where every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern, I host context and clarity conversations, and we take these topics and we dig deeper. We have a conversation in real time to try to find more clarity around the things that matter most to you. So thanks for listening. I hope our time together has inspired you to think about your community, your practice, and how you can support those around you. Catherine and I will be back for our next episode. And in the meantime, I hope you'll join me and the Entree Architect community on Facebook today at 4 p.m. Eastern so that we can help each other find more clarity around the topics that matter most, no matter what your context may be.
I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.